This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Dr. Douglas Jackson, President and CEO of Project Cure, the Commission on Urgent Relief and Equipment, who works to bridge health resource gaps in the developing world by empowering doctors and nurses with the tools they need to treat disease, administer vaccines, perform surgeries, and ensure safe childbirth. Since 1987, Project Cure has delivered equipment and supplies to hospitals and clinics in over 130 countries. Project Cure is consistently recognized with the highest four-star ranking from Charity Navigator and was named by Forbes as one of the top 200 charities in America. Dr. Jackson graduated magna cum laude from Northwest Nazarene University in 1982, receiving his BA in Business Administration. In 1985, he earned a JD from the University of Colorado and received the American Jurisprudence Award for Excellence in the Study of Law. Following his admission to the bar, Dr. Jackson administered the legal affairs for an international agricultural firm and subsequently earned a PhD in business administration with an emphasis in finance and econometrics, then opened the Fermanian Business Center at Point Loma University in San Diego. In 1995, Dr. Jackson assumed the role of provost at Colorado Christian University and is a Rotary International Paul Harris Fellow. He serves on the board of directors for Interaction, World Denver, the Nanda Center for International and Comparative Law at the University of Denver, and the Rukert Hartman College for Health Professionals at Regis University. Past service includes the Institute for International Education that administers Fulbright scholarships. Dr. Jackson received the Lifetime Achievement Award in Healthcare from the American Red Cross, the Civis Precepts Recognition from Regis University, the 5280 Magazine Philanthropist of the Year, and accepted the COBIZ Best Places to Work and Colorado Ethics and Business Award on behalf of the team at Project Cure. Dr. Jackson, great to have you with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. You've been actively involved with universities and students throughout your career. Uh, and as the executive director of the Fermanian Business Center, you developed and implemented programs and seminars to advance business opportunities, not just for, for professionals, but for college students as well. And you've also taught at universities and designed a graduate course. What draws you to work with students in all of these ways? Well, I, I, I really love working with kids because they're excited. They are looking forward to you know great things in the future. Uh, they love life. They keep me feeling young and, and encouraged and energetic about what we can do. And and there's an element, too, that, you know, there were so many people along my path that put stuff into my life. I kind of enjoy the opportunity to give back, and it's kind of the ultimate pay it forward. And how has your own education been influential throughout your career? You know, um, I think law school, I, I consider it to be one of the biggest hazing processes in the world that that three years is just really difficult because we go from a university system where they tell you basically what the answer is to a place like law school where they will not ever tell you what the answer is you have to come up with it on your own and so it it taught me a whole different way of thinking about things and a, and a different viewpoint on life and i think that was a 
a pretty interesting uh, experience for me. And it, you don't really think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, but you look at problems differently because of the way that they teach you how to think in law school. So there was that piece. And then the, the PhD in finance I did because I really thought I wanted to go to Wall Street and just make a gazillion dollars. <laughs> and... Um, and I didn't do that. I ended up, you know, doing the nonprofit uh, arena with my life. But some of those concepts, like just thinking at the margin, and we have this conversation around here. Uh, let's say somebody comes in and we're going to do a, a special event, and they say, "Well, what if we, what if we do this? You know, what if we have this choir come in and sing?" And the question is, okay, so tell me a story at the margin. If you in, invest another two dollars, what factor do you get back? Is it two dollars times? two dollars times ten what's your hurdle rate you know and some things like that 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 are different and I don't think most nonprofits think about things that way and so some of those entrepreneurial skills that I was trained in and some of the things I watched my family do um, we apply that thinking in a lot of the things that we do here at Project Cure. And were there specific experiences growing up that inspired your commitment to others? Um, yeah, we, you know, I was raised in the church, and that taught me from a very early age that giving is um, is really what it's all about. Um, I remember, you know, my church did a, a capital campaign. It was too small. They were going to go someplace else, buy some property, do another church. The only thing I had in my whole life, and I'm talking I was third or fourth grade, at $11.50, and it was a collection of 50-cent pieces. And I really felt convicted that that's what I was supposed to do, was to give that money, uh, which is all the money I had at the time, and I did. I marched up to the front steps, and I handed over my little box of 50-cent pieces and, and gave it to the church. And it was an interesting lesson, because the, the lesson that Sunday had been on uh, – corn and the idea that if you take an ear of corn and you peel the seeds off of it, you know, the, each individual piece of corn and you plant that, you get 10 or 15 times. And when we hoard things, when we keep them all for ourselves, uh, it's just like, you know, putting the corn on a shelf and what you get maybe is that ear of corn. When you plant it and you release it and you let it go and you put it into the lives of others, you get a whole lot more corn back. Um, and that was a, that that was the lesson that I learned that day. And like I said, it must have been third grade. And I gave my eleven dollars and fifty cents. And that's such a key lesson. And it's great to hear. So how does that reconcile with wanting to make a gazillion dollars on Wall Street? Um, I don't know that it did at the time. The other piece of that that was you know very much a part of my growing up was watching my dad and my uncles. Uh, and they did. They made a lot of money. They developed part of Winter Park and a little bit of Vail, and they made a bucket load of money. And I watched them, and I watched their work ethic. And, you know, I was one of those kids. My dad didn't come to see my games, but instead of getting a chip on my shoulder and complaining about my dad the rest of my life, I just looked at that and thought, here's a guy that taught me how to work hard and taught me the value of, you know, you get sun up to midnight and that's all you got in your life and what are you going to turn that into? And and so the only thing I had ever seen in my life were people who made a lot of money. And um, I thought, well, I can do that. But while I was kind of going through my metamorphosis, my dad was into this position of deciding that all the money that he made 
uh, didn't make him happy. And so he and my mom started a foundation, and they gave that money away, and that was what was the genesis of Project Cure. And uh, it was in that act, actually living out that $11.50 into the lives of a lot of other people that have created this little mission that we're on right now. Yeah, and your dad, James Jackson, founded Project Cure in 1987. What, what, literally, what literally inspired him to start the organization? Well, he, he started out, of course, being a real estate developer, had no medical background at all. So the reason he was in Brazil was he was working with a guy named President Sarney, who was the president of Brazil at the time. And back in the mid-'80s, they were having this huge problem with um, inflation. They had borrowed too much money in their government, and to pay it back, they had basically monetized that debt. They did that after the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, you know, a country with eighteen and a half trillion dollars of debt. We may see that come to roost here. Uh, yes, the, I, and and maybe sooner than everybody thinks. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But that's what they were doing. So you know, the only thing that happens after that is you just get hyperinflation. And at the time in Brazil, inflation was over three thousand percent. So that was the problem that got my dad down to Brazil to do economic consulting to try to work with the president to say this is how you get yourself out of it. Commodities have value, and you can trade those for other commodities of value. You don't have to mess with the exchange rate. They, in the United States, we do that with real estate. We call it 1031 exchanges. And you can swap this office building for that office building, and you don't have to pay taxes on it. And that's how my dad had done really well in, in business. Anyway, so he's down there working on that project, and he ends up with this interpreter. And she was a medical student. And she decided that she would take my dad to uh, this little clinic. Her mom was a doctor, too. And they used to do health care in a favela, uh, about 300,000 people. And there was no medical care in that little community except for this doctor's little clinic. And my dad walked in there, and it was basically just an old beat-up house. And it had a old exam table stretcher cot thing in there, and he had a box of real bandages and... You know, his pediatric ward was actually a bedroom, and the only thing that was in that bedroom was um, a baby scales and some Walt Disney posters. And it just tore my dad's heart out. He, he just was confronted with something he had never experienced before and, and couldn't believe it. And so he came back to Denver and was telling some friends about that and, you know, <laughs> told his buddies. He said, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just met this guy, and um, I made him a promise that I would help him, and I don't know where I'm going to get the stuff. Well, one of his friends that was at lunch that day was a guy named Greg Lowe, and Greg gave my dad about $50,000. Greg owned a medical wholesale company, and he had a bunch of extra stuff, and he gave my dad $50,000 worth of brand-new medical supplies. And my mom and dad um, stored that in a garage, and he worked with Greg. My dad worked with Greg for a few more weeks, and in about 30 days, they had accumulated a quarter million dollars medical relief, and my folks paid to ship that down to Brazil. And that's how we got started. What a terrific catalyst. And and how was your experience observing your father start his own ambitious nonprofit? And were you involved? Well, I was uh, doing my Ph.D. at the time. So I was up in Boulder and studying and just kind of watching my dad do all of this stuff. And, um, uh, you know, it was an interesting lesson. And, I'm you know, I think I don't think that he thought that he was going to start this big international nonprofit. I think he thought that he was going to help a clinic in Mesquite, Brazil. 
Well, then he got another call and another call and another call. And I remember sitting at the table with he and my brother one day and he said, you know, I think I might be onto something. I think there's a lot of people who could use help. And, um, yeah, he said, what do you guys think? And we said, yeah, knock yourself out, dad. <laughs> so I headed off. I thought, well, I've got all this education and I didn't have any student loans at the time. So I decided I would go to San Diego and teach college at a little liberal arts college out there. And that was going to be my give back, which teaching at a university in San Diego is not really what you call charity work. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. But that was going to be, you know, two doctorates, 29 years old, no student debt. That had to come from somewhere. And I, I was honest enough to admit that that wasn't me being really, really smart. That was, you know, a gift that had been given to me. And so I decided that I would give back and I taught out there for a while. And, um, when I was turning around, ready to go to look in Chicago or Vancouver, Canada, or someplace like that, maybe New York to go to, go to work, uh, my dad said, hey, I could really use some help with Project Cure. So um, we wrote a grant. We got $75,000 from uh, the Bolt House Foundation. Those are the people that make Bolt House juice and little baby carrots. And... Um, that was going to pay my friend Doreen. She was going to do all of her marketing and PR and, and do some fundraising. And my buddy Dave was going to take care of, we had about a dozen volunteers at the time. And then I was going to help my dad on some of the business back, back office work. And um, that 75 grand we were going to spend over six months. And that was going to be the end of that. And so that was 18 years ago. I've been running this now for 18 years. Yeah, which is, which is when you became president and CEO of Project Cure, yes? Right. Yeah. And what advice would you offer to college students, uh, to young adults, uh, either seeking to found or become actively involved with a nonprofit? Well, I think um, there's two things. I think in general, I, I tell college students to figure out what gets you so excited that it gets you up out of bed, put your feet on the floor, and you just can't wait to get back into it. I was at University of Denver the other day, and we were talking with a group of, of students, a classroom full of students. And I told them, I said, the thing that you got to do is figure out what your passion is, and then go pursue that passion. And this girl came up to me, and she said, do you really mean that? And I said, yep. And she said, well, I'm studying to be an accountant. And I said, let me guess, you don't like accounting. And she said, I hate it. I said, <laughs> why are you doing accounting? She said, because my dad is an accountant and told me that that's the way I could make a life for myself. And I said, what do you want to do? And she said, I would love to run summer camps. And I said, let me guess again. Your dad says you can't make any money running summer camps. And she grinned and she said, yep, that's right. And I said, does your dad know how much my friends pay to put their kids in summer camp every year? <laughs> he said, you run the best summer camp. You will have the top summer camp in the country because you love kids and you love summer camp and you just can't wait to get out of bed to go run summer camps. I said, if you are an accountant, you're going to be the worst accountant in the world because your heart's not in it. So sorry to your dad, but I would suggest that you do that. And I said, by the way, I said, have you heard of Camp Bow Wow? And she said, no. And I said, well, look it up because my friend Heidi Ganahl started Camp Bow Wow. And this was not only a daycare camp, it's a daycare camp for dogs. And I said, that girl started this camp and got it up as a franchise to the point where a veterinarian company came and bought her out for 
a lot of money and kept her on for a while to run it. And I said, um, you know, you could call your dad and have him fly around with you in your private jet to go look at your summer camps if you're that excited about it. And um, anyway, that's kind of the message that I give to these kids is get involved in something that, that just excites your heart. And you were that's what you were made to do. And don't feel like you got to be an engineer because your dad and your brother and everybody else are engineers. Do what do what is honest with you. And gratitude would seem to play an active part in that, uh, certainly in your own life and for, for other young adults. Would, would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. on that way, you, you figure out pretty quickly that there's a lot of people who help make your dream come true. And if you really love the dream and they're helping you make your dream come true, then you respond out of a heart of gratitude. You want to do something for somebody else too. Um, yeah. Which often looks people to look outward. Uh, which is obviously one of the things that Project Cure does so well. What, what are Project Cure's major goals? Well, we've got very specific um, production goals, if you will. Right? We've taken some of those business concepts and we've, we've really tried to work with Project Cure on our day-to-day, -day, um, you know, on our goals, on what we're going to achieve. So... This next year, we're going to ship 178 semi-truck trailers of medical supplies. And every one of our six warehouses, distribution centers across the United States, we're in Denver, Phoenix, Nashville, Houston, Chicago, and our newest distribution center is in Philadelphia, just outside of Philly, sort of toward Wilmington, Delaware. Um, and every one of those has a, has a goal. And so you break that down. They know how many pieces of equipment they're going to have to check. They know how many pieces, how many boxes they're going to have to produce in order to hit that goal. In the next five years, I think we can double production. Last year, we did 145 semi-truck trailers. And I think this next year, we can, within five years, rather, we can probably do as many as 300, uh, which is a lot of stuff. Every one of those containers carries about $450,000 worth of medical supplies and equipment. So that's one of our goals. Um, it can't just be volume, though. It's got to be good. So part of what we're trying to do is uh, set the standard on what makes really great products when we ship it uh, so that these countries, when they receive it, they know that it has been checked and double-checked and that the equipment works and that the product is safe and sterile and all of those things, we're working on that. We are taking part of what we have learned, and I tell my team all the time that our biggest assets are not the 20, 30 million bucks in each one of these warehouses, it's not the medical supplies, it's what resides between our ears. So the knowledge of how to do this, how do you work in 50 or 60 different countries in a year? That's hard, that's really hard. And how do you do that and how do you do it with no money? Uh, how do you fix, defibrillators how do you fix centrifuges if we can teach a kid in africa how to do this we can teach retired engineers in the united states how to do this if we can teach a kid in africa how to fix a oxygen concentrator in a centrifuge we just gave that student a, a, a ticket at a decent life right because this entire world is short of biomed technicians how do you teach moms uh, how to take care of their baby? How do you teach midwives how to take care of moms and save moms and save babies when they come out? So we're taking a lot of this, and we call it Cure College, and we're trying to teach the things that we've learned as, as well as actually provide the stuff. So 
those are some of the things that we're working on, um, you know, for the future. And how once the material is on the ground, how do you ensure that it gets to where it needs to go? Because you work internationally. Well, so. Yeah, absolutely. That you know, one of the sayings that I like to tell people here is the food never gets better after it leaves the kitchen, right? <laughs> yes. As good as it's gonna get. Yeah. So you get to define where your kitchen is. And we defined our kitchen as being a needs assessment. So we're one of very, very, very few organizations in the world that go on the front end and do the needs assessment. Now I'd like to think that was a particular bit of genius, but it was necessity because my dad, remember, was not a medical doctor. So he started this whole idea of going to the recipient, sitting down and saying, what is it that you need? Tell me about medical care in this facility. How do you deliver babies? What happens when a mom comes in here at three o'clock in the morning with obstructed labor from the back of a, of a little pickup truck, right? What do you guys do? Do you do orthopedics here? Do you do heart attacks? What happens when a guy shows up and he's in atrial fibrillation and he's having a hard time making it? Well, we've now developed about an 18-page questionnaire that takes us somewhere between two and three hours to get through. And that is what establishes our baseline. It's an interview with all the doctors, the nurses, the academic staff, whoever is in that hospital. And then we go through every room of the hospital and we document everything with, with pictures. Uh, so we got photo documentation. It's through that process that we come to understand what I call the three C's. Character, do you really trust these people? Capacity, can they use the stuff that they are asking for? You know, some people will ask for an x-ray machine and they don't even have electricity. We're not going to ship that. And then customs, can you actually get it in? In, into the country without getting it taken. So character, capacity, and customs. And it's it's that process that that sets the ground. If we really feel like we can get the right stuff to the right people at the right time, then we'll do the project. If any of those three C's go sideways, we just don't do the project. If you do your homework at the beginning, if you set that kitchen, if the food is as good as it can get at the time of the needs assessment, then by the time we start actually shipping and, and delivering things, we've answered a lot of those problems. Yeah. Which is such a critical element, isn't it, in the whole process? Otherwise, it just falls apart if at the back end, or rather at the, uh, at the recipient end, uh, it's just not doing what it should do. Yeah, and there's, you know, that I, that's probably the most difficult thing within our, if you want to call it an industry, is just these stories about places where, you know, well-meaning people have gathered up stuff at their church and they just throw it in a container and they ship it over there. And, you know, there's equipment that doesn't work and there's things that are broken. And, you know, a lot of these third world countries now are sort of putting up roadblocks and saying, hey, we don't want you guys dumping. Stop sending us all of your, you know, big, thick, ugly box TVs just because you guys wanted to go to a flat screen you don't want to throw the other one away. You're dumping them in our country. We don't want them. And so, you know, and it's just crazy stuff. In the middle of, let's say, Hurricane Mitch in Honduras, people from the United States were sending winter coats. Well, you don't need a winter coat in Honduras. You just don't. So, you know, there's there's a lot of that that has has been, I think, it's not because people intended to do the wrong thing. It's just that they didn't really know what they were doing. 
And in a smaller and smaller and smaller global world, it's getting harder and harder to do some of this work without really completing the homework up front and making sure you know exactly what it is that you're doing. And Project Cure works in a wide range of countries. So it would seem that you very clearly adapt your approach and services depending on where you're working. Would that be fair to say? That is fair to say. Yeah. Uh, every country's got different regulations. Every, every country is facing different things, uh, you know, customs, practices. I was in Uganda earlier this year, and, and one of the things that they had mentioned was this tea. And I, that's the first time I'd ever heard of it. And what happens is that when mom goes into labor, uh, the husband comes along, dad shows up, and he's got this herbal tea that he wants her to drink. And the herbal tea um, contracts the uterus. And so if the cervix isn't dilated and she's not ready to deliver that baby and you contract the uterus, you end up with uterine ruptures and these moms bleed out, right? So I asked him, I said, how come is this that these dads keep bringing this tea if this is a problem? And they said, well, this is part of the local culture here. The belief is, is that if the mom waits too long in labor, in other words, she's in labor for 24 hours, 36 hours, they don't have Pitocin, so they give them this tea because in that culture, the belief is if mom is is a long time in labor, it's because the dad, father, has committed adultery somewhere. He's been messing around. So he doesn't want his reputation defiled because this wife of his is in labor too long, so he gives her this tea, and sometimes it kills her. And you just look at that and you think... Good Lord, I never would have had any idea except that we went there and we started asking. You go to Ghana, they don't do that in Ghana. So it's not like every place does it. It's it's specific to the location as to exactly how it works. And, um, you know, you go into some places. When I was in Papua New Guinea a few weeks ago, the cesarean rate is 2%. I go into Mexico, some of these hospitals is 50%, 5 50%. That's all important stuff to know before you start working in there. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Dr. Douglas Jackson, President and CEO of Project Cure. And that's one of the ways that you protect mothers. How do you work with children specifically? Um, there's a lot of things that, that impact kids. Uh, and again, it, it depends on the geography. Um, some places they still do fires in the middle of the floor at home and these little toddlers fall into the fire. and so. We've done work with, um, you know, burn victims and things like that. 
um, there's a really cool facility in Tanzania. Um, a lot of the kids up in Arusha and Moshi at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro, they get uh, rickets because there's so much fluoride in the water. And so there's a team of doctors that go over from the United States, from Minnesota and from Colorado, and they do surgery on these little kids. And so uh, the plaster house takes care of these little kids uh, while they still have the cast on so they don't have to go home to their, you know, I mean, literally Maasai huts, uh, you know, with a, with a cast on. They can stay at this home. So we've helped to facilitate the orthopedic surgery, and we've helped to, uh, you know, with cast saws, you know, plaster pair of saws and things like that to take the casts off and, you know, providing medical supplies to those places. Um, other places, you get a lot of little kids who are suffering from waterborne illness and, you know, oral rehydration therapy is a, is a big issue. We've provided um, NG tubes to places like Ethiopia during the Green Famine and, you know, these little kiddos coming in and they hadn't eaten and they was distended and it was just really difficult. The only way that they can survive is to get some food right into their tummy. And the only way you can do that is with NG tubes. Mm-hmm. And if you're making 20 cents a day, you can't afford that stuff. So there's just a whole lot of things that we're trying to work on. And are there language barriers? Obviously you, you work throughout the world. How do you, how do you overcome these language barriers? Do you have people partners that you work with on the ground? Yeah, every one of our projects are undertaken as a partnership project. So Project Cure doesn't have staff that we pay in Kenya, for example. We will always go find somebody who's doing good work already, and we support them. We give them the resources that they need to do better work. And so usually in that group, there is somebody. It could be a missionary. It could be uh, a local. uh, It could be whoever that has been someplace and they study English. And so, um, you know, we're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, the, the one funny time, I was in North Africa in a little country called Djibouti, up north of Somalia and Ethiopia, Eritrea, that area. And we were doing needs assessment. And I didn't speak any of the local language. Um, but they had a, a doctor that was from Cuba. And so we did the needs assessment um, in Spanish, <laughs> because that was the one language she could she could speak Amharic, which is the local language there, and she could speak Spanish. Well, I spoke English and Spanish, so we came together on Spanish in the middle of Africa, and that was kind of a funny one. That's great when that happens, and yeah. s- sometimes the uh, it's not only the language barrier, but it's the societal barrier. But when you're working for the same goal, it definitely makes it so much easier, doesn't it? Right, it yeah. really does. Yeah, and tell us about the uh, the Cure Clinic and Cargo programs. So Cargo, I've, I've got a funny um, penchant for alliteration. Uh, <laughs> it's just part of the Project Cure branding. Everything's red, and probably it starts with a hard C sound. So we've got Kids Kits and Cure Kits and Cure Cargo. The Cargo is what we call the program where we deliver the the forty foot cargo containers, semi truck trailers of, of medical supplies. And that starts with the invitation, and then we go do the needs assessment. We come back and we put together the the um, contents of what's going to go into that container. We ship that list back to those doctors that we just were with, and we said, this is what we propose to send to you. And then they approve it, which is really an interesting step, by the way. 
But anyway, once we get the approval, then we ship the container. So that whole process is called Cure Cargo. Um, the clinics is something that grew out of us coming back, and we would talk to these doctors and nurses here in the United States, and we would tell them what we do at Project Cure. And they would say, man, that is so cool. Could we ever go with you? And then we would get over there, wherever there is, and we would be talking about this and that. And they'd say, man, thanks for all the stuff. This is really terrific. Do you ever have anybody that would want to come and help us? Well, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but if a doctor or a nurse in the United States wants to go, and there are some friends of ours that really need some help, I'll bet we can facilitate a trip. And so that's what we've been doing with our clinics program is actually – uh, taking doctors and nurses, it's short term, it's less than two weeks, and we may go in and see two, three, four thousand people, and we only go to the places where we deliver containers, so we're going with the doctors, and the idea is is to come in and, and teach a little bit, uh, sit next to the local doctor so that we're not displacing the local medical personnel, and see what we can do to help elevate the entire infrastructure. And tell us about that approval step for the cargo program. So that's a really unique piece of all of this. Uh, there's a couple of ways to, to do this. We've chosen, let's call it Route A. Route B is you just put up an inventory and you let people just get on your website and cherry pick off the inventory and then you throw it in a container or they have to come get it and they ship it over there. Um, the problem with that is, is you never really know where the stuff is going. Yeah, that gets back to what we were talking earlier. Exactly. Yeah. So we've opted the harder way, and the harder way is is that we actually go do that needs assessment. Well, sometimes we'll see things uh, that they haven't asked for. For example, we might go to a hospital or a, a clinic someplace, and they say, you know what we really need is an ultrasound, and we need a fluoroscope, and we need a lithotriptor. Well, a lithotriptor is the machine that bombards kidney stones, and you probably don't need one of those in the third world. It's a nice thing to have, not necessary. Fluoroscope is a great thing to have in an operating theater, but you're going to have to have some other pieces to make that work. Um, an ultrasound machine is a pretty good thing, and as long as you've got consistent power, there's a lot of people who could use one of those. So we probably wouldn't send the lithotriptor. The fluoroscope is iffy. We could probably do the, the uh, ultrasound. But in walking through the hospital, we might see that they're actually reusing gloves. So we'll say, you know what, we can provide latex gloves for you too, or non-latex, or sterile, or non-sterile. You might see that all the nurses are in uh, street clothes. And say, well, how about if we get you some scrubs? How about if we get you some needles and syringes and some other things? Well, those are things that nobody would ever think to ask you about. But when you get there, we see that they really need them, and so... We're able to provide those too. But rather than just stack it all in a container and send it over there, we give them a list ahead of time and we say, this is what we're proposing to send to you. If you have anything on this list that you really don't think that you can use or that you don't want, cross that off and get back with us and we'll put something else on there for you. And so that process takes a little bit of time. But what it does is it keeps the doctor on the receiving end of this container it keeps them in the driver's seat, so they know exactly what it is that they're going to get. They're the person who has the, the authority to say yes or no to any of the stuff we're going to send them, and 
in that way, we're trying to empower that doctor instead of disempower the doctor. We want to give them the things that are appropriate. And they may look at that and say, you know, thanks for this, but we really don't know how to use a laparoscopy tower. We, we don't have anybody here that can use that right now. Or, um, you know, we appreciate the little plastic potty chairs, but we don't use those here. We would rather have something else, bedpans. And so um, that that lets them have huge amounts of input into the project instead of us coming over and just saying, hey, we know best. Guess what you're going to get for Christmas, you know? Mm -hmm. Which is part of the training that you do. Uh, for doctors and nurses. So tell us more about uh, the specific training that uh, that you give directly to doctors and nurses. Well, we'll, we'll do a, quite a bit of, of helping them. So to do those needs assessments, um, it's a, a couple of day process to go through the training about what they're going to see and how our system works and what we're looking for when they go over there. And then we actually take every one of those people on a trip with us and they have to do this side to side with somebody who's already uh, been trained and have done a lot of these needs assessments. That way they get to practice. We get to have some um, feedback. Um, I just took somebody with me not too long ago to train on one of these needs assessments. And at the end of a couple of days of doing that, she looked at me and said, you know, I like the idea. I don't think this is something that I can do. It's, it was just emotionally too difficult for her to go through this hospital and see these people suffering. And she just said, I, I don't think this is for me. And that's an okay answer. I would much rather know that when we're together than for us to send her out and have her, you know, melt down in the middle of some needs assessment somewhere and mess up the whole thing. So there's quite a bit of one-on-one -on -one time that happens as well. And what's, what's ProCure and how does the program work? So what we're doing there is we're working with, um, organizations, uh, for example, Hill Rom. Hill Rom has been amazing in their generosity to Project Cure. They donate all of their hospital beds uh, out of uh, the different hospitals. So when they're taking those back in, uh, they take them down to Indiana, where their factory is, and they'll refurbish these, these hospital beds. And then they ship them off to, to Project Cure, and we place them around the world. Uh, we do the same thing with Stryker and their drills. We do the same thing with, um, we're working with Covidian, uh, which is now uh, Medtronic. Medline gives us hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of inventory, you know, every four to six months. Um, then we also work with the hospitals. So we go to the different hospitals in the cities where we have warehouses, and we train these nurses on, and nurses are, unbelievably terrific. That's who makes the system run uh, because they know where all the stuff is. They have to go in and they set up before the doctors get there. They have to break down and clean up. And so we go in and we in-service them. We teach them that this stuff is good and can be reused. This stuff is stuff that you should, you know, grab. Don't, don't throw this stuff away. This stuff is, uh, here's pieces of equipment that we can use in another setting. And so we, we actually train them to do this work within the hospital and uh, it ends up being a terrific process for everybody involved and you mentioned medtronic and striker surgical and there are other companies you work with from right. their from their perspective does this fall into the category of a corporate um, csr corporate social responsibility it does it does in fact um, 
Hiram is a, is a classic example. They decided at a board level that they were going to find an organization that was doing things the right way and wouldn't waste their product. And they searched all over the United States and they picked us. And I, I have been forever grateful about it. But that did bubble up out of a out of a CSR mindset, and you know it's the same thing with with uh, Medline out of Chicago, uh, with um, Steris and Amsco and all of those people. They're really looking for a way to give back, and the people who are excited about that usually starts with the employees and the executives, and you know it just ripples all throughout the organization that way. That's so great to hear. And do you find this to be more of a, a theme that's coming up in the corporate world of, in fact, giving back? I think so. I think, you know, maybe six or eight years ago, 10 years ago, it used to be uh, something that a, a company could really distinguish themselves with. For example, Ben and Jerry's, right? Yeah. They came out and they said, hey, we're really unique in this market because we take a percentage of our ice cream proceeds and we give them back into the community. Um, Save the Children did that with their ties. You know, you go in and and Save the Children was the only tie company giving back. Well, now Mothers Against Drunk Drivers have ties. There's a lot of people who have ties. I think at some point in the very near future, and maybe it's now, uh, everybody's going to look and say, look, this is the ticket to the dance. If, if you're any kind of corporation, tell me first about your CSR, and then I'll decide whether or not I want to do business with you. Yeah. And you've seen some companies come out that, that start as pure play CSR companies, uh, you know, Tom's being one of those, uh, Tom's does shoes. And they started with this notion that you buy a pair of overpriced shoes and we're going to give a pair to some kid in the third world. Well, you know, $50 for a pair of canvas sneakers is a lot of money. But I buy them because I know that they're going to help people overseas. We do the same thing with a company called Figs, F-I-G-S, Figs. And they're doing this Tom's model with um, with scrubs. We started doing another project uh, with a group called Help to Heal out of Boulder here. And these are the folks that um, uh, Rob Israel started Doc Popcorn. Well, his little guy Mason, who's like eight years old, says, hey, Dad, how come little kids don't have Band-Aids? Can't we start a company where if you buy a Band-Aid, we give a Band-Aid away? Well, they just got launched into Whole Foods, you know, and it's a really cool program. They just showed up the other day. They delivered 100,000 Band-Aids to Project Cure because that's how many they have been able to sell already. That's phenomenal. So we're doing some fun things like that in this integration of for-profit, not-for-profit. You start to blur the lines a little bit. How come you can't have a company that makes money and can pay the employees, but actually the end result is they do really, really good work around the world, and the answer is you can. You can and the CSR is also a great way to attract the best employees, isn't it? You know, we do a lot of work with Newmont Mining. And uh, I, I love the guys at Newmont. You know, a lot of people want to criticize the mining industry and things like that. But we've done some pretty amazing work with these people and um, all over the world. So I was having a conversation with the woman who's in charge of their CSR. And I'd ask her, I said, so how do you guys compete? Like, we work with Ken Ross. I hope that doesn't make you upset. We work with Rio Tinto. They're a mining company, too. We do some work with Anglo Gold and some of these other companies. I said, I, when I go in to buy my daughters a, a necklace or a bracelet or whatever, I don't say, in a way, I, I want to see the Newmont Gold bracelet. Gold is gold. 
how do you compete? And she said, we compete on two things. She said, we compete on the concession, who gets the mine in that location. And she said, we compete for employees. And she said, the employees want to know that what they do matters. And they want to know that, that we as an organization are giving back. And I thought, what a cool thing, you know? <laughs> if, if college students, and this goes back to one of the questions that you asked at the beginning, if you're looking at two companies, and they're roughly paying you about the same, and your job is going to be basically the same, pick the one that's got the strongest CSR program, because then you know that from the top to the bottom, you're really doing something to give back. And don't do the one that's just sort of window dressing. Give the one that, that take the job with the one that really gives back into the community, wherever that community might be. And volunteers are obviously a crucial aspect. You've got thousands of volunteers nationwide. What's your experience been coordinating such a large volunteer base? Well, I think a couple of things. People really want to volunteer. And that's an interesting, neat thing about the United States that I don't see, frankly, anywhere else. Uh, we tried to start a project here in Norway, and they're like, you know what, volunteerism just is not part of our civic society. We do our charity a different way. And that's fine. But I love working with volunteers because they really want to be here. So our, our ratio, our numbers are a little out of whack. We have about 27 employees, and we've got about 20,000 volunteers. Mm -hmm. And so our volunteers end up taking the responsibility. And there's, you know, a lot we could talk about with that whole notion of, of empowerment. Um, we live in a community where, you know, management has basically taken away all authority from employees, but they'd like to hold them responsible anyway. Right? So the person at the ticket counter at the airport, they can't change your seat, but they have the responsibility of trying to keep you happy so you don't go to the airplane you know, on down the concourse. And, and they and they bear the brunt of the criticism when it inevitably happens, don't they? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, but they don't have any authority to do anything. Yeah. And so, you know, it's unfair to the employees. So one of the things we try to do to, for, with our, with our uh, volunteers here is to say, look, if you've got the responsibility of getting this container out the door, you now have the authority to do what it takes to get it done. And that takes a lot of... Uh, you know, planning, strategic planning within our organization to make sure that we recruit the people, that we train them, that we have an eye, an eye for who's going to be a good leader. Because at, at Project Cure, we've got volunteers who lead volunteers that manage other volunteers. And um, there's just not very many folks who take the time to put that into place that are willing to say, okay, I'm going to give you the keys to the, to the car. You're in charge of getting this down the road to where we want to go. And by the way, I'm not paying you, not money anyway. Right. Uh, which is a reflection of your entire philosophy, isn't it? About looking outward, about giving to others, and you appear to convey that quite well to the volunteers as well. Well, here's the thing, is if I've done, and this, this is universal between nonprofits and for-profits. If I've done a great job of capturing your hearts, if I know that the reason you're motivated to show up and do this is the same reason I am, then I don't really have to worry about you having ulterior motives. If I don't capture your heart, then I'm going to think that the only way that I can motivate you is with a little bit more money. And the problem, Daniel Pink talked about this in his book, Drive. But the problem with that is somebody down the street can pay you more. 
Yeah. And that's always going to be the case. So I never really trust you, right? And therefore, we're going to put some pretty draconian measures into place that reflect the fact that there is no trust. And if I don't trust you, you don't trust me either. And we've got this whole corporate America thing that says, I can staff up, but at any time I'm going to sell the company and you're going to be out of a job and that's your own tough luck. So you come into the company thinking at any time that guy's going to sell the company and I'm going to be out of a job, so I'm looking out for me, right? And it's a whole different way of doing business, and it's a really tough way of doing things because then you have to you have to manage with a rule book that gets thicker and thicker and thicker all the time because we never went back to say, why are we all here? You know, Simon Sinek talks about that in, in his book, Start With Why. Why do you do what you do? And if management doesn't answer that why, then the whole rest of it, just forget about it, because now you just became, you know, the guy on the assembly line in 1920 who's going to beat everybody into submission, and it's just not ever going to work. And so, you know, I think that there's a whole lot that we could do in corporate America to reflect some of the values that some of us have had to figure out by necessity in nonprofit America. Yeah, and that plays into the issue of loyalty and when it's not governed by the paycheck, how much more lasting it is. And that's so apparent. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and so the way we get paid around here, even the staff, you know, the way we get paid is when people come here from foreign countries and they say, let me tell you what you did for my hospital. Or when, you know, we get to go there and you walk through the hospital and you see little kids that are, you know, going to go home next week because they actually got surgery instead of dying. Um, and, and you did that, you know. And so part of my job at Project Cure is to be the chief storytelling officer. And I get the opportunity to come back and tell everybody, hey, guys, I just got back from a place you probably don't want to go. But let me just tell you the difference that we made in Sudan. Yeah. Let me tell you the difference we made in the middle of of Sierra Leone and Ebola, which I don't want to go to Ebola, Sierra Leone. You know, that's a scary place to be. But, man, we put 16 semi-truck trailers of medical supplies into that country, and I know that we saved a lot of doctors and nurses, and we saved some patients. And And you look at that, and you come back, and you tell people, this is what it really does around the world. You're not just wasting your time here. You're saving people's lives. And that story is so powerful that I can have confidence that those people are here because of that purpose. And then it's just a matter of teaching somebody what to do. You know, you got to put this box over there. That's all we're going to ask you to do today. And here's the reason why. And I trust that it's going to get done because they're as committed in their heart to do this as what I am. And, and at that point, I know we're all playing for the same team. Yeah, it's so good to hear about these concrete projects. And what does the future hold for Project Cure? Uh, what would you like to see happen, ideally? Well, in a perfect world? Yes, <laughs> and then we'll get to the imperfect world. We would yeah. work ourselves out of business. I mean, I'm not talking about colleges and, and universities and hospitals. Those are nonprofits. Museums are good nonprofits. I hope those don't ever go out of business. But other nonprofits like homeless shelters, like Project Cure, our goal ought to be to put ourselves out of business. And we've done that in a few hospitals around the world. Estonia, they don't need our help anymore, and that's a good thing. So in a perfect world, a lot of these hospitals would say, hey, thanks for your help when we needed it, but we've got it from here. We don't need you anymore. And that's a day of celebration for us. 
Is that going to happen anytime soon? I don't think so. Um, eventually, what I could see is Project Cure could be in 25 major cities with distribution centers across the United States. And the reason I know that to be true is, is because when we did this study a few years ago, Denver was the 25th largest medical center in the United States. We may be a little higher now because of what's going on out at the Inchutes campus. But we're shipping a semi-truck trailer every week out of Denver. And we've got the connections to do this all over the world. So Houston is the biggest medical center in the world. We have a warehouse there. Uh, Chicago is another one of those. We've got a warehouse there. Los Angeles, we need a warehouse in Los Angeles because there's people that are taking this stuff and they're throwing the garbage right now. And it's crazy because that stuff could save people's lives. And I could see us operating warehouses in 25 cities. Yeah. Now we're in six. So that leaves us 19 more to go. If we do that, if they're all producing a semi-truck trailer a week and we know how to make that happen, uh, that tells me that we could do 1,250 semi-truck trailers in a year which is roughly $600 million worth of relief that we could provide um, and, and have a whole bunch, maybe 150,000 people helping us do it. I could see that happening. And do you find that governments are generally very supportive? It would seem that there's, there's no downside to them being actively supportive of your work. Uh, you mean recipient governments? Yes. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing. Um, in general, I would say yes. Um, I think some governments look at us and they say, man, this is just too good to be true. You mean some donor gives you $20,000. That's about what it costs us to ship a semi-truck trailer. You get 20 and you deliver $450,000 of this stuff to us and you're not asking anything in return. Yeah. What, what am I missing here? You know, and we tell them. You're not missing anything. We're doing this because we want to help you, you know, and they just don't get it sometimes. So sometimes we have that problem. I referred to the problem a little bit earlier about governments being leery of nonprofits dumping. And so we're having to get better and better about telling the story about why this is not junk. Even though it might be expired in the United States, it's still got a lot of useful life someplace else. And, the U.S., you know, our FDA, we play by different rules. We, we, we short date things so that people have to throw them out even when they're still good. Uh, I like to say that the United States is the only place in the world that puts an expiration date on blue cheese. <laughs> yes. It's blue for a reason, right? Yes. It's spoiled. That's why. Yes. We, we date beer. We date water. We put expiration dates on bottles of water. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And so, you know, right here on my desk, I've got a, I've got a titanium saw blade. That's not ever going to expire, but it's got an expiration date on it. So we're starting to get some pushback on that, and that just grieves me because I've been in places where doctors are not doing surgery because they don't have any gloves, but the government won't let you bring gloves into the country. Uganda just came back and said it's illegal now to, to import diapers into Uganda. Unbelievable. So I would like to say that, you know, without exception, they all – open their arms and and that's just not true but for those who do we're here to help them and obviously the uh the longer you do this work and the more that the word gets out uh, i think people would be more receptive to 
uh, obviously your goals, uh, your mission, what you're looking to accomplish, and maybe some of these things can in fact be changed. Well, we're working to really set the gold standard so that they know that anytime they get stuff from Project Here, it's going to be right. And, and that's that's part of our commitment to excellence and, and quality and really keeping focused on what the mission is. The mission is not to ship as many containers as we can. The mission is to save as many lives as we can. The container part is just one metric on on the volume. But the question is, is are you doing your best work in that, in those countries? Because those guys deserve it as much as we do. Sure. And from these crucial aspects, we'll conclude our interview. Uh, Dr. Jackson, thanks so much for joining us today. What a thrill. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Sure. Well, the best way to reach Dr. Jackson and to support Project Cure is through projectcure.org. Click on the website links above this podcast for further details. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.